So I have a grand objective this afternoon, and that objective is to compete with the effects of fried chicken. Uh, I'll try to, to keep this uh, succinct so that you can uh, ease off into your naps, hopefully later, and, uh, and not uh, right now. But I just want to say again to the congregation, to the elders, and uh, to so many of you, how much uh, I love you and uh, appreciate the work that you do in this community. Appreciate Bob and his work over the years, the elders, and um, all those uh, people that I see that aren't here, uh, but I see where they used to sit and uh, treasure up their lives in my heart and um, think about the impact that they have uh, had on my soul and so many of yours uh, over the years. It's been a, a great uh, Great day. I appreciate all the kind remarks that you've had and all the love that you've shown towards my family. Uh, I get excited because I, get, I know my nephews are here, and I, I, uh, I, I think about the impact that you had on my two boys over the years, and I think about their future and their love for God and, and uh, the good parents that they have. It's, uh, it's interesting how fast time flies when I look at Brandon and Christopher, and I'm... Uh, I realize that, uh, that, that's, that the moments are, are swiftly uh, passing by, but uh, appreciate you all, appreciate you being here this afternoon. We're going to think about God's strength this afternoon, and specifically 10 ways to be strong in the Lord, 10 ways to be strong in the Lord. If you look in the world today, there is a lot of emphasis on strength training. You look in, uh, in the sports world, and there are strength coaches that spend time specifically on uh, helping empower the bodies of athletes, whether they be professional athletes or college athletes or, or even uh, high school athletes. There's a lot of focus on strength. Olympic athletes will spend hours of very strict diets, very strict training regimens, and what they eat when they eat it uh, before a, a, a certain athletic event, uh, very strict regimens in exerting power for that particular moment in time. When we look at our biological world, we see that there's a lot of strength in which our creator designed this world. We look out and we can see eagles that soar and they can, they can carry twice their body weight. We can look at something like a tiger, excuse me, an eagle can carry four times its body weight. A, a tiger can carry twice its body weight up a tree. We look at a gorilla that can lift something 10 times its body weight, and it's said about an elephant that it, uh, it can carry the equivalent of 100, <clears throat> 130 adult humans. That's the power, the brute strength. But then when we look in the insect world, we see ounce for ounce, pound for pound, the strongest creatures in the world. It's said of a, a leafcutter ant that it can lift something like 50 times its weight. A rhinoceros beetle, 850 times its own weight. A dung beetle, 1,141 times its own weight. That's the equivalent of a 150-pound man pulling 171,150 pounds. Tremendous strength in the insect world. When we come to passages like the one Forrest just read to us, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What we see in the animal world or in the insect world or in the professional athlete world is but a glimpse and but a microcosm of the power that exists in God. 
God can speak and the world can be created. Jesus, by his own voice, can uphold the universe, Hebrews chapter 1 says. The power in the voice of God, the power in who he is. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so this afternoon, I want to spend just a few moments trying to wrap our minds around this idea of power that Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. Notice the text. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Strength number one this afternoon is let me submit to you that according to Scripture, there's strength that's found in identifying, clearly identifying who the enemy is. Paul will lay that out for us here. He'll clearly lay out for us who the, ident- uh, who the enemy is. When you think about a human military, when, you, when, a, when a nation goes into battle, it's not healthy for an army or a navy or a marine force or, or some, uh, uh, some war to be engaged in where it's kind of funny uh, or fuzzy who, who we're in opposition to. You don't enter into battle not knowing who your opponent is. It is the job of ambassadors. It's the job of embassies. It's the uh, a job of those uh, political powers in high places to, to act in a cordial way. But when war happens, a military must clearly know who its enemy is, must clearly identify who its enemy is. Well, Paul, who is the enemy here? He says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, what Paul is saying as you trace this idea through scripture here in these 10 verses is he's not saying that there is no evil that presents itself within human flesh. It most certainly does. In fact, he's going to paint a picture of a a soldier that's involved in various aspects that certainly would engage in in a flesh and blood warfare. But what he's doing is he's taking us behind the veil of what you and I can see. There is an element beyond the human ability to see. And Paul is taking us behind the veil for a moment. Imagine, if you will, looking into God's holy control room and being able to see all the evil forces at work, all the evil angelic forces that work, Satan and his powers at work. And God and his powers at work. These powers aren't equal. They aren't on an equal plane. But there is engagement in a spiritual warfare. And Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What do you mean, Paul? He says, we wrestle, he says in this text, but against the rulers. Here are individuals who who are in power. These are opponents who have power. There are authorities. Those are people with administrative control. There are cosmic powers who would be world rulers or world tyrants. And there are spiritual forces of evil. He takes us behind the scene. What you and I can see, what you and I can sense. And he says, there's a whole world of darkness that's alive. And it's targeting us. It's coming after us. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against these dark powers. They enter 
they are interwoven into, into our world that is flesh and blood. But he's talking about a warfare that is of a different order. Jesus would say, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my, my soldiers would fight, but they don't fight. But there's a spiritual warfare that's continuing to wage and will continuing, continue to rage on until, until the Lord returns. How do we stand strong? First, we've got to identify the enemy. Number two, when we think about spiritual warfare, notice verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In this spiritual battle, it's important for the soldier of Christ to arise and put his armor on and her armor on. And they must stand in the strength, right? Like the song goes. Stand firm. Notice what he says. Put on the whole armor that he may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The soldier of Christ will not prevail unless the entire armament is intact. The whole armor. The soldier of Christ will not prevail unless the whole... If the shield... Someone may know the word of God inside and out, but if their shield of faith is laid down, if their sword is, in, is out, but their shield is laid, if their helmet is taken off, if their shoes aren't in the proper place, if the belt isn't what it should be, the breastplate is, Satan will know the weak links in our armaments. So put on the whole armor of God. And then he says this, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Joshua would say in Joshua 24, 15, that as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. There's got to be a backbone to our Christianity. There's got to be some intestinal fortitude. Man, that means you and I as fathers, you and I as men in the church, we've got to stand up and lead. We can't be passive. We cannot sit and warm, warm the pews while Satan is picking our wives off of us and our children and stealing our children from the Lord. We can't sit back and let Satan have his way. We've got to stand firm and we have to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to pray together. We're going to be involved in the church. We're not going to be the passive person in the pew. My dad used to have a joke. Some of you may have heard it about playing basketball. And I could relate because this was kind of my basketball career. He said that uh, in basketball that he played center and guard. He said he sat at the center of the bench and guarded both ends. And so uh, we can't be that in Christ. We can't be the pew warmer. We've got to get busy. There is somewhere, there are some excellencies that you possess in your spiritual life. Magnify your strengths. Let the Lord magnify your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. He wants to. Find a place to serve and get busy. We've got to be strong. <clears throat> We've got to be soldiers of the cross. That means on issues like abortion, We've got to stand firm. That means on issues like LGBTQ, we've got to stand firm. That means on issues like instrumental music, we've got to stand. That means on issues like all the religious division that exists, we've got to stand firm. Do not apologize. 
And do not pull back from the words of God that you know in your heart are true. Dig in. It's a war out there. Stand firm, the Bible says. Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We get strength not only from identifying the enemy and from a rigid positioning, but also we get strength from a belt of truth. When you think about it, a warfare and battle, it's important that in a military engagement that there be constant information that's accurate to the battle scene. In, in, uh, in our military forces, there will be information that's given. There will be uh, communication that's given between ground forces and forces in the air and, and perhaps information that's gathered from satellites or from uh, all sorts of different places because the battle will shift and change and, and the military has to be equipped for whatever comes its way. Here's a belt of truth. It goes around the waist. It is fastened around the waist and... It's there to, to impart strength and power. It's right around the midsection. It is the glue. It is the informer. But he also says, not only must we put on a belt of truth, but a breastplate of righteousness. In the world today, it's out of vogue sometimes to say or to make a case that God is right. There is this notion in postmodernism there's this notion in postmodernism, when you think about the culture and the culture that we live in, that if you believe in righteousness, you're automatically arrogant. If you hold up the truth, then you hold it up dogmatically. But that's not necessarily true. It is true sometimes that people are both self-righteous and arrogant. But this is not a righteousness of our own. This is a righteousness of God. And God will try to get you to back away from this righteousness, to compromise at various levels uh, in our society. This righteousness is not a, a righteousness of our own. You know what? You can be proud of your God. You can be confident in your God. You can hold fast to his word and not apologize for one moment for the truths contained in it. It doesn't mean that you're arrogant. It doesn't mean that you feel like you're better than somebody else. But here is draped across your chest. It's God's righteousness. He made you righteous. It doesn't mean that you're arrogant. It doesn't mean that you're argumentative. It doesn't mean you want to debate everything. But it means that your Lord is right. And that as his soldier, you are going to be his instrument of righteousness. Drape this across your chest. You want to be strong in the Lord, uphold the breastplate of righteousness. And then he says, verse 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This soldier of Christ is not engaged in a warfare that is of the flesh, necessarily. Not flesh and blood. This spiritual warfare that this man or woman is involved in is running to a certain aspect of the battle. Jesus, in his relationship with planet Earth, in his relationship with mankind, came to reconcile us. In reconciliation, there's an exchange of hostility for peace. Instead of vengeance, we receive the very peace of God. 
This reconciliation exists between God and mankind. And so, so Paul would say that our shoes are to run to put out fires. Putting out fires. You're going to bring peace to people's lives. You know that we don't have to look very far in the psychiatric world or in the psychological world to see that there are a lot of troubled souls in our world. There is so much anxiety. There is so much depression. There is so much fear. There is so much hopelessness. Where does this come from? Paul would say there are some spiritual forces at work in the dark places, and they are having impacts upon our material world, upon our flesh and blood world. And there is this battle, and these shoes of peace are running to give people hope, give them encouragement, give them the peace that they need uh, in this life. Jesus came to give us reconciliation. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul's now going to move into some different instruments of warfare. I'm going to talk about a shield here, a shield of faith. I'm sure if we were to take, uh, open up the floor for discussion this afternoon, there would be various instances that you could name of people that you know who have simply laid down their shield. I want you to see in scripture that the soldier of Christ, who's getting strength from God, that when they lay down their shield, the darts, the fiery darts of Satan, just inundate them. I want you to see the picture that Paul is painting here. You can imagine a, a soldier in warfare that lays down his gun, takes off his flak jacket or whatever it is he's wearing to protect himself, takes off his helmet, and then just runs straight into battle. What's going to become of him? What's the enemy going to do to him? There are people that you know, there are people that I know, that have taken their shield that is a weapon of defense. They don't penetrate the soldier when the shield is, is up. The fiery darts hit the shield, but they're deflected. And you and I know people that have taken that shield and laying it down. And you watch. And you've observed. And you've seen what the enemy does to their lives. Sometimes in the battle, it's, ah, I'm just missing church. Missing church on occasion. Maybe it's a Wednesday night here. Maybe it's a Sunday night there. Then it's Sunday all day. And then it's a month goes by. And then you hear, well, it's something going on in some aspect of their life. They've laid their shield down. And Satan's having his way. And the darts of the evil one are just inundating them. This is a defensive weapon, the shield of faith is, for fighting off the fiery darts. If we don't want Satan to penetrate us, we've got to hold our shields up high. We've got to maneuver them in various directions. We've got to protect ourselves with the faith that God delivers us. God wants to empower you 
but you're going to have to trust in the one who leads us in the battle. You're going to have to trust the one who is the victor. You've got to hold the shield high. It's a defensive weapon. I've heard of an illustration like this, where young people in a congregation are lined up in front of everybody. They take all the young people from the smallest to the high school, maybe college age, they line them up in front of the congregation. Then they turn to the congregation and they ask them, which one of these, lining them up across the auditorium, illustration like this, which one of these are you okay with us losing? Which one of these would you be okay with, with Satan having his way? Which one of these would you be okay with them not being faithful to the Lord? It's penetrating, isn't it? Wouldn't be okay with any of them being lost. Wouldn't be okay with any of them not staying the course with Christ. We love our kids. It starts at home with instilling these military-like strategies. A breastplate some shoes, a belt, all of these things, a helmet. It starts in the home. That's what keeps them to be valiant soldiers of Christ. Verse 17, and take up and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's not popular in our day and age and time sometimes to talk about salvation. Oh, it's true in our world today that there are a lot of saviors that the world believes in. The world believes sometimes in retirement. They believe, oh, if I have money in retirement, that will save me. If I have my health, if I believe in medicine and the powers of doctors and the medical establishment, I'll be saved. There is the belief that if I, if I have a good career, that will save me. If I'm highly accomplished in the community, if I've got an academic pedigree, that will save me. If I have great relationships with my children or with my parents or with my coworkers or with my friends, surely my friends will save me. There's this belief that, man, especially in the United States, we have all of these false gods that people think will save them. But there's just one savior. There's only one name given among men by which we might be saved. That Savior is Jesus Christ. There's strength in this helmet. The helmet is one of salvation. On the head is clear thinking concerning who it is that will lead us to victory in this battle. It's significant that it's on the head because the thought processes, thought processes for the soldier are going on inside the head. The thought processes are focused on the one who's leading us in victory. The one who will ultimately save us. It's a helmet of salvation. Not only that, but there's also a sword. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have a defensive weapon, which is the shield. Here we have an offensive weapon. It's essential in Christ Jesus that you not be a person that is entirely passive in your Christian faith. It's easy sometimes to simply come and sit in the pew and to go on your way throughout your week 
You can do it for weeks, months, years, decades of your life. But Peter would say this, that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That means taking the sword and taking it into battle. When I first started going to Africa, went with Ted, went with Bob, went with Bob, went with uh, Ted one year, and um, the patience of your preacher was on full display. I don't know if you remember this, Bob. It was 2004, I think. Bob was on a, in a van that broke down six times. You think about patience, right? Six times his van broke down. Bob just stayed the course. Going to keep preaching and teaching the truth. But here, here's this idea of the sword of the spirit. When I went to Africa and I spent time with Bob and the African preachers, one of the things that I was jealous of in a good way was how sharp their swords were. I had my books that I brought with me and because I didn't have the passages memorized and didn't know exactly how I would talk with people about the word of God. But these African preachers, didn't matter who they walked up to, didn't matter who they engaged with, they were battlefield tested. They had taken their sword consistently into battle and they weren't afraid to use it. They weren't afraid to, hey, we'll turn over here to this passage and given your belief, how does this, how does this belief align with these verses in Scripture? You see, this word of God, it's got to be taken into battle. That means with our neighbors and our friends and our family and our loved ones. This is the sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. It is a weapon that's for the offensive. We can't be merely passive Christians and expect to be pleasing to God. We've got to take this word off into battle. That means being on the offensive. That means sometimes people thinking, you know what, he's a weirdo. All right, you can think of me that way. They thought of Paul that way. It's, it means that sometimes people are going to find you offensive as well as the God that you believe in. This is an offensive weapon. We must put it to the test. Not only that, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So here's this idea of a praying, a praying soldier. And not only a praying soldier, but a supplicating soldier. What's that mean? It means a soldier that's begging that's asking, that's seeking advice from central command on how to engage in this spiritual warfare. You're going to need help. You're going to need help from the authority that's on high. And so if we're going to have strength and power in the Lord, we will be praying people, praying at all times in the spirit, being alert and persevering. Verse 19, and also for me that Words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's all well and good for us, like Peter, to pray for boldness. 
Pray for courage in the moment to stand firm. Pray that you will keep your breastplate of righteousness intact. Pray that salvation will be clearly positioned on your head. Pray that truth that's around your waist will have its way with you in in your life. And that when that moment comes, you will not draw back. But you'll say, this is the moment. God's opened this window of opportunity. And as we sing the song, Soldiers of Christ Arise, that when God opens that window and you're in the heat of battle, that you'll be the soldier that's bold. What's it mean to be powerful in the Lord? Paul paints a a dynamic picture of of what that's like. There are multiple ways that we can be strong in him. I hope this morning or this afternoon, I hope this afternoon that this has been a source of encouragement to you on how you can be strong in the Lord in the days ahead. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a Christian, you can begin a life of strength in a strength that's as a power beyond you. This is greater than beetles and eagles and insects and all that. This is power that comes from on high. God wants to empower your life. It'll begin by putting on the whole armor of Christ. It could be the case that someone here this afternoon wants to begin a life empowered by God. They want to begin a life of being a Christian. You can do that by hearing believing, repenting of your sins, confessing the sweet name of Jesus, being buried in the watery grave of baptism. This will begin a life where God empowers you. He wants to empower you unto salvation even this very hour. But maybe you're here this afternoon and you've kind of shrunk back. You've shrunk back. You've laid off certain armaments in this spiritual warfare. You haven't been the Christian that you should have in arising in times of battle, but too often you've kind of pulled back passively. Maybe you need to come forward and get your, right, your life right with the Lord. You need to confess and to make sure that, that you're running to the fray and not pulling back. We've only got a certain number of years and moments in this life. Let's use them to God's glory. And we do it as we stand and sing.